Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talked with Christina Cleveland. Christina Cleveland is a social psychologist, public theologian, and activist. She is also the author of the recent book, God is a Black Woman. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Hannah Kaminer. Hannah Kaminer is an indie folk artist from North Carolina. You can get connected with Christina and Hannah Kaminer and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today we have Dr. Christina Cleveland with us, and Dr. Christina, you are a public theologian, and you do so much incredible work out in the world, and you also recently wrote a book called God is a Black Woman, and I am so excited to chat with you about this book. With that said, who is Dr. Christina Cleveland to Dr. Christina Cleveland? Oh, wow. Uh, Well, I don't refer to myself as Dr. Christina Cleveland. I think of myself as Nina. That's the name my family has given me and the people that are closest to me (laughs) call me. And I am a rabble rouser. I'm an artist. I'm a creator. And I like to stimulate spiritual imaginations. And so I'm, I'm kind of like always one foot on this planet in another, but kind of in another world. That's just kind of how I move. Wonderful. That's sweet. You know, there's been a few times where I've chatted with somebody and they mention about how like they're they're known by their family in a different way than how they're often referred to publicly. So it's interesting. Mm-hmm. Like you, you said Nina's what how your family calls yeah. you. It's just mm-hmm. so interesting, like how names <laughs> are like a way to identify like who's in relationship with us. Isn't that such an interesting way mm-hmm. that we navigate the world is by just by like how we're called? Totally. Yeah. And I have, there are people who have tried to, because to, Christina, you can do so much with potentially, you know? Right. And so there are people who have tried to give me nicknames and only two people have been successful. Two of my closest friends who are both black women. And I think I just don't dare defy them, you know? So one <laughs> right, calls me right. Steen and another one calls me Chris, but literally everyone else, I shut it down like really quickly. Right. 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 <laughs> tell them like, it's Christina to you. So yeah, it is funny. Like naming has so much power. Yeah, we have absolutely. To, we confer that power to people, you know, or not. <laughs> right, including naming God like as a black woman, right? Has a lot of power. <laughs> yeah, good segue. <laughs> so, like I mentioned, you wrote this incredible book called "God Is a Black Woman," and you've been studying theology for a long time. Uh, do you, is your PhD in theology? You would think. 
It's not. What, what's your so, PhD in? Yeah, I know. It's funny because when I was a professor at Duke Divinity School, a lot of my students were like, where did you go to Divinity School? I'm like, nowhere. I just teach at yours. <laughs> <laughs> you know? um, my PhD is in social psychology. Okay. Yeah. Incredible. So I'm, all of my theological education is informal. Interesting. I've been like, a pr- I've apprenticed with people. And so when right. I was living in the Twin Cities, I met often with Greg Boyd for coffee and we would talk through theology, right. for example. Right. So, so yeah, so I'm, it's interesting because my theological instincts, I think, are more natural and stronger than my social psychological instincts, but my formal training is in social psychology. Right, right. Well, so with that said, though, you have been studying theology for a long time. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would at least consider you an incredible theologian. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so with, with that said, what did you learn theologically while you were writing this book that maybe you didn't know theologically before? Mm, really good question. Certainly, um, the, the process of research that I went into leading up to, the, to like my pilgrimage and then the books that came out of it, but I mean, so many things. I mean, I learned so much about feminist visions of even Christi- of cr- the Christian God. But then, of course, I started studying goddess theology and like feminist visions of the divine outside of Christianity. Um, one of the things that was a huge eye-opener for me was learning that the serpent, the snake in the Garden of Eden was this like really powerful symbol in ancient culture um, of the sacred feminine wisdom, the, the feminine divine, and how, you know, the patriarchs, the Judeo-Christian patriarchs chose to position the serpent as the anti-God, as an attack on feminine wisdom. You know, that I, I literally threw the book across the room when I heard that, like when I read that. <laughs> I was so angry. So there were eye-opening moments like that. But I think when I finally started doing the intensive research that went into this book, I was already fairly aware. It was more so just learning from other people, like how can I, you know, and they're trying to figure out how does this all come together. So, but there were moments like that where I was like, what? Wow. <laughs> like, They've been lying to me. <laughs> I love that idea of like the serpent being this symbolic or this symbol of femininity and then that relationship with Eve then. And there's this like unity of femininity that's really interesting. I mean, there's a reason why not all, but like many Jewish interpretations of the Genesis 3 text are so very different than many Christian interpretations of the same text. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the things that has been powerful about going on this journey towards God as a Black woman is just realizing that there are so many more stories being told than the ones that I was exposed to as a little girl and the ones that I was allowed to put on my syllabus when I was teaching at Christian colleges. And so in this idea that we can all sort of claim our divine in a way that resonates with our personal experience has been powerful. Speaking along those lines then, this isn't your first book, but in the process of writing a book, I think we really learn a lot about ourselves. So what did you learn about yourself while writing this book? What was one of those powerful things <laughs> yeah. that was really maybe liberating for you or something that was uh, that a revelation about yourself while you're writing the book? Yeah, I mean, I feel like God as a Black woman is proof that I can heal myself. Mm. And so I learned that about myself. I think the hardest that the, I think I would argue more transformation happened in the writing of the book than in the journey that led up to the the events that happened in the book. Because as I came back from my pilgrimage 
and had had all these amazing encounters with these sacred black feminine images of the divine and the black Madonnas in France, I then had to choose, do I want to just leave those experiences in France or do I want to allow them to actually transform my life back here in the U.S.? So what does believing that God is a black woman mean for my relationship, for the way hierarchy has benefited me and also oppressed me in my life, for my relationships to certain spiritual communities, how I spend money, whether I stay on this, the, the Duke Divinity School plantation or not? You know, like there's so many ways in which this this journey invited integration into my life. And part of the reason why it took two years to write the book the pandemic notwithstanding and like black genocide notwithstanding was that there were several times where I was writing a chapter and I was like, you know what, in order to write this with integrity, I need to do more work on my relationship to my body. So I'm going to set this aside for a couple months and actually just go and do some healing work. And so I think like to, to go on a journey and come back with a bunch of ideas and then to actually put your name on them as an Enneagram one, I'm like, I cannot put my name on this book that God is a black woman if my life doesn't actually look like I actually believe that God is a black woman. And so that I learned so much about integration and just that I can, and I learned that I have a, a, an incredible gift for spiritual formation because it just comes naturally for me. So I can write in my journal, this is what matters to me. And then so easily I can come up with practices that support my commitment to that belief so that my actions come into alignment. I love how it wasn't just some sort of like abstract theological statement for you to think of God as a black woman, but like it was something that you needed to be able to embody before you were able to start writing these ideas down. Totally. Yeah. And I wonder, like, I, I wonder if that's the part of the problem of white male God is that it's just ideas. It's like, let me go to like TED talk and talk about this God and not as opposed to actually having a relationship and saying, no, look at this part of my life and that part of my life, but they've all been touched by this relationship. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, it's the embodiment. It's the, it's the freedom. It's like, do I really feel free by this idea? Does it feel good in my body? <laughs> if it doesn't feel good in my body, why am I holding on to it? Yeah. So you just briefly touched on this idea of the white male God. And at the beginning of the book, you talk about a story where you were first exposed to that white male God. When you talk about the white male God, what do you mean by that? I, I, call, I call him the patron saint of white patriarchal religious conditioning. So he's represented in the ways in which our society confers moral gravitas and holiness and goodness to people is if they if they are if they represent whiteness and maleness and the more we are able to sort of put ourselves into that box the more we are valued in our society and so white male god is obviously represented in churches in the white the white christ but white male god is also represented on the supreme court where almost everyone's a white man and we have to have a whole debate on whether a black woman can be a moral leader in our country you know and so it shapes how much we see certain people and their bodies as inherently good and thus worthy of life their story being heard being moral leaders, being spiritual leaders. And so, you know, I, I talk about how white male God has really shaped our spiritual imagination in this country, so much so that white men 
especially if you're sort of that individualistic white cis male middle class or higher white man they're automatically seen as worthy of really anything that they want to do whereas black women who i would say are at the opposite of who white male god values I mean, just, just for saying, I need help, a Black woman is called a welfare queen, even though she's already dealing with sexism, racism, and capitalism. So for her to show up as a human being is seen as unholy and scorned, and for white men to show up as human beings is seen as inherently good. And so white male God is the term I made up to sort of encapsulate all of that. It, it is the white Christ, but it's also so much more than that. I also noticed at times where you would put white male and God together as if it was one word. And I, there's clearly some sort of reasoning behind that. And my guess is because they're not disconnected. The white, the male, and the God are not disconnected from one another. Is that kind of the reasoning behind totally. it? Totally. Yeah. I mean, as soon as I introduced the concept of white male God in, in chapter two, I, I just call it white male God, all lowercase, all connected. And really, that's, that's giving honor to bell hooks who kind of talks about the white, white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchal, like she has her heteronormative, like she has her whole, it's all one word, right? you know? And so just realizing, yeah, you can't really separate whiteness and maleness from how we understand the divine. Mm -hmm. So the white male God is not a new idea and it didn't just get invented overnight. So can you talk about historically how Christianity came to create this concept of the white male God, because I think that like his, that history of it is really important to, for people to understand that actually this is historically situated and that this didn't just like appear out of a vacuum that like the idea of a white male God is not just some sort of timeless idea that it actually was created very intentionally over many, many centuries. Yeah. And for a purpose, for the purpose of amassing power for white people and white and white men in particular. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, one of the fun things about researching for this book and really just for my like liberation project was discovering that for tens of thousands of years, the earliest, the earliest humans believed in a black female God, the earth, the earth was the goddess. And also, so God was female period, because back in the day, uh, people didn't understand, you know, without the scientific method, they didn't understand that um, there was a relationship between having sex and getting pregnant and having a baby because there's nine months in between. So, you know, like it's not it's not apparent that having sex causes this. And so men weren't even associated with childbirth. And so women just got pregnant sometimes and had babies. And so God was always seen as a woman because women were the bearers of life. And then God was always seen as, as was often seen as black almost exclusively because God was connected to the earth, which also bore, bore life. And so for years and years and years and years and years, you know, people were goddess worshiping culture. And if there was a male God, he was kind of a side, a sidekick, like a consort or a son or something like that. And then of course, the Indo-Europeans came on the, on the scene and they were essentially Vikings. Like if you think of the vibe of the Indo-Europeans and they had um, a kind of a father sky god who was scary and kind of a Zeus figure and they colonized the entire global south where the vast majority of the um, goddess worshiping people lived and what's interesting is doing research and realizing that you know in the Judeo-Christian narrative 
Abraham may have been Indo-European, Sarah definitely was Indo-European. And so that was the entire colonizing culture at the time. So Abraham would have been ex seriously exposed to the idea of the Indo-European God. And then all of a sudden he goes to Mount Sinai and who appears? Essentially the Indo-European God. That's who Yahweh is, according to, to Moses. I'm sorry, to, yeah, to, to, sorry, not to Abraham, but to Moses. And so a lot of feminists, uh, theologians believe that the burning bush was actually a woman, the female God speaking to Moses, but Moses wasn't able to interpret that as a female God and actually just interpreted that as Yahweh, this Indo-European father sky God who kind of just zapped people um, if they didn't agree and was totally okay with the Israelites just colonizing and killing all the goddess worshiping cultures in the region in Canaan. So yeah, so we start to see that the concept of God changes depending on who has the power. And so it, during the more matriarchal cultures where women had more power than they do now, the God female. And then when the Indo-Europeans came, which was a very male dominated culture, the God was male. And then that was passed on through the centuries. And obviously gets manifested in its own particular context. So in America, for example, it really has a certain kind of flavor or development of the way that that white male God looks like that might be a little different than 2000 years ago in first century Palestine, but still nonetheless right. mm -hmm. is taking on those characteristics of, again, what you're describing as the white male God. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the discrepancy between the Jesus as depicted in scripture and the way that Christianity works in the United States, you like someone who's completely oblivious to Christianity and maybe has never stepped into church or been in a vacation Bible school or a Bible study or whatever would be like, I don't get it. Like I read the Beatitudes and then I see Christians uh, supporting Ukra the, the Ukraine invasion and I'm just so confused, right? <laughs> and I mean, it's because our, our concept of uh, Christ here is so shaped by the, the colonial enslavement period. And, you know, the enslavers needed a Christ who could substantiate and justify their enslavement of black and brown people and their amassing of wealth at the expense of human lives. And so they just completely reinvented the Christ of the Bible to be like, he's a powerful white man. And he's on the side of the powerful white slave owners and everybody else got God is far from you, essentially. And so just a complete flip of who the historical Jesus is. So you, again, mentioned at the beginning of the book about the story of your first encounter with the white male God. If one per a person was to go into a church right now, and especially if they were a child, how would they be taught that God is a white male. Like, how, what's, like, what are the ways that churches are actually teaching this white male God, whether it's in their children's ministry, youth ministry, or even in their Sunday services? Yeah. So, I mean, visual representation is always so powerful. And so in most churches, the, the Christ is white and male. Um, and that's typically depicted in children's books and, you know, um, Sunday school curriculum. But it's, it's more insidious than just that, because white male God is also taught to us through our hierarchical spiritual structures, where you have a pastor or a priest or somebody who, frankly, is a mediator between you and God and has the authority to tell you what to do. 
in your life and what is right and what is wrong. It also shows up in how shame plays a role in a lot of Christian religion in the U.S., where it's like, if you aren't doing the right thing, you're going to be damned, maybe even to hell, but definitely you're going to be ostracized and marginalized in our community. And you see that with the way that the church has dealt with LGBTQ folks. And to say, just as like a tipping point, um, but then you also see how white male God shows up in using fear as a motivation. I mean, even most more more often than not, the invitation to come to Jesus and to sort of make a decision for Jesus that you see in a lot of Christian churches is really so you can avoid being damned. Like it's a completely fear-based way of even encountering this God and surrendering your life over to this God. Sure, we use the terms like God loves you, but also it's like, but if you don't, kind of check this box, you might be in trouble. Yeah, the terms and conditions um, are there that you the, the terms and conditions aren't exactly are explicitly there. stated. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so uh, it, it's, it's quite um, it's quite cunning in the sense that you might get some worship music or some things that are like, you know, come boldly before the throne of grace. But then you're also in the way that the leadership and maybe your parents interact with you. You're also taught to stay in your lane stick to the hierarchy. Here are the rules. We decide what they are. And you need to contort yourself into something that's acceptable to these rules. And that's why we have like statements of faith that people have to sign in order to be on staff at certain places. And you have to sign these community life agreements. And, you know, the whole like true love weight campaign where it's like we're policing people's bodies um, rather than having a real conversation about what do you want your sexual story to be? And, 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 and so like, so much fear and control. I think that's really white male God too, beyond just the images. Yeah, they always say that it's a relationship and not a religion, but it turns out it really is just a religion for them. Yeah, because when you're in a relationship with someone and you really care about them, the first thing you do is abdicate control over them. You know, like if I have a friend who just wants to do something, my first thought is I just want to support you in what you want to do. I'm not interested in telling you whether I even agree or disagree with what you want to do. <laughs> but that's not what we're taught. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. So you've talked about what you mean by the white male God. You've talked about how historically that white male God was created and invented and currently how it's manifested in the United States and how it's even taught in our churches. So if that's the white male God, then what do you mean, what do you mean by black woman God? Yeah. 
So I went on a journey because I got fed up with how this white male God was continuing to terrorize me as a black woman. And I felt so unsafe. And I felt like there, I, there was nowhere for me to turn in the spiritual world that was not anti-black or misogynistic. <laughs> and so I went on a journey to look for a God who was black and female. And I, the first, the first major archetype that I encountered was the Black Madonna. There are many, many, many more, um, but the Black Madonna kind of from the rogue depths of Catholicism is this Black Virgin Mary. Um, and she's in Catholic churches, but she's also way beyond and way witchier than the Catholic church. And most of the Black Madonnas have roots that go back to the ancient goddesses like Isis and Demeter and Black Artemis of Ephesus, who Paul, the Apostle Paul, hated, hated, which is just like so interesting to me that the goddess that he hated was Black. And so I think, you know, for me, I call that the sacred Black feminine. I call that, I call her the God who, unlike white male God, stands with and for Black women because she is a Black woman. And by calling Black women holy and sacred, she really calls all of us holy and sacred, because if she can call the most, the, the most vilified holy and sacred, then we all are. And so it's kind of this like flipping of the way that we've understood white male God. So wh- one of the things that I'm kind of curious as a person who's interested in theology, who's you know, been through seminary and everything, is how you sort of think through like the Amis that typically get attributed to God and how that might relate to black woman God. Just because maybe like that the the omnis like God being omnipotent and omniscient mm-hmm. and all the mm-hmm. other omnis like maybe that's just not like a way to think about black woman God or maybe there's like sort of rejection a rejection of certain of those omni omnis anyway I'm just curious like how you think through that framework since at least for the white male God that's a really big piece for the development yeah, and creation of the white totally. male God. Yeah, right. I mean, like white male God is all consuming, all powerful, do not mess. It's like, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's almost like the, I think of it, I think of white male God as kind of a narcissist, like the narcissistic bully who tries to show up big and puffy and don't mess with me, but really is like quite insecure and unstable. And that's why he's so petulant. And like, wow, it really sounds happen. a lot like a recent United States president. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right. Um, or the average megachurch pastor. Right, <laughs> exactly. Know? Like, where it's just like, wow, you're so touchy. I'm so, like, like, this is all a facade, right? This kind of high but unstable self-esteem. And so I think white male God and white patriarchal religion has to claim all of those omnis in order to puff itself up. And I think white male God is really um, interested in the spectacle because he, he kind of runs off fear. So it's like, don't mess with me because I will blow you to smithereens because I know, I know everything. You can't hide anything from me. And I'm everywhere at all times. The Sacred Black Feminine is an invitation into connecting with a very different way of understanding power. Instead of power over, it's power with. And the, uh, the, the, the difference between a matriarchal society and a patriarchal society is not just the flip of the patriarchal society. It's not just, okay, now women are in charge. Actually, modern day matriarchal societies are organized really differently in the sense that they're, they're, the entire society is organized based on people's need. 
And so in a meeting people's needs, that's the goal of the society. And, and to be a human in that society is to be a, a someone who can meet needs. So there, if there is a big power that's available, it's used to meet the society's needs. It's not to say that, I, you know, I, 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 my conception of the sacred black feminine is that she's both transcendent and imminent. And so in a sense, there might be some omnis that can apply to her, right? You know, like in some of the like more poetic, beautiful passages in scripture, like, you know, I, I, I can't escape from God's love. You know, I think that could be true of the sacred black feminine, but that's not used as <laughs> like a threat. Right, right, right. <laughs> like, you can't hide from me. I will, I will run you down. Right. But really it's just like, Hey, I actually have the power to meet your needs and to see you no matter where you are. And, and that's a power with. That means that I can empower you to then turn around and see other people and 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 be there for other people too. So I, I think I use the way matriarchal societies work as a way to understand how power might work theologically with the sacred black feminine. I really love that. You know, I, I've got to admit, I'm really involved in the process theology world, and this sounds a lot yeah, like the way that theology. yes, absolutely. I just, I just yeah, wanted to say, yeah, I'm, um, I don't want to project that onto you, but I'm just yeah, saying. No, I, I think there are some <laughs> elements of process theology that really resonate with me. And Carol Chris wrote a book called "She Who Changes," which is basically like a feminist goddess theology um, process theology. Oh, interesting. And some I'm of unfamiliar with that make, work. Oh yeah, it's. it's it's, I think it's only a few years old. It's relatively new. But some of the points she makes about the way, like, the goddess work are very intertwined with process theology. And sometimes process theology, when it's coming from the white male perspective, feels a little wonky to me. But when she was talking about it, it's like, oh, this actually feels pretty life-giving. Yeah. Or, yeah. like, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Monica Coleman's work, but I've had her on the totally. podcast yeah, before. Yeah, and it, yeah, it just yeah. really, it's, it sounds yeah. a lot like mm -hmm. that integration of, obviously, womanism, but also some process mm -hmm. thought as well. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. you mentioned before about how churches are teaching the white male God what are ways, like very practical ways, that either somebody or even the church can teach and spiritually form people into the black woman God? So instead of the white male God, like mm. what are ways that they can actually practically teach the black woman God and even spiritually form people into the black woman God? Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure that existing churches will be able to do that because that's of a how, fair. That's a fair. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm not interested in reclaiming things that are not worth being reclaimed. So, I, you know, I think that's a question for churches to ask themselves. You know, are we? Do we have the tools? You know, and there's a whole chapter in my book on how the sacred black feminine is un unlike white male God. The sacred black feminine is is truly welcoming of all people. But just because she's welcoming us doesn't mean that we're ready to, fo to actually follow her. And I talked earlier in this conversation about how in order for me to even affirm that God is a Black woman, so many things in my personal life needed to change because she wants us to heal. She doesn't want to control us, but transformation is part of moving toward her. And so I think churches, spiritual communities that want to begin to say, you know, I practice the sacred black feminine. I don't just believe the sacred black feminine. 
they need to get around, they need to get into formation around her unapologetic blackness and centering of black women, particularly black trans women. And so I don't think this work can happen in our heads. I don't think, I mean, I can, I can recommend a bunch of books. There's pages and pages and pages of citations at the end of my book. Like, obviously you can read the books that have formed this theology, but really it's the practice of what does it mean to truly embody as an individual and an organization a commitment to the liberation and sacredness of Black trans women? That's where we start with teaching other people this is what it means to believe in this God. And I think that's where there's so many things that would need to be dismantled at institutional church that it, it's better to just burn it down and start something. No, no. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know? Like there would be nothing left in the church if, if it actually centered black trans women. So. Were there some particular embodied exercises or practices that you did that you'd be worth or that you would be willing to share that helped you in that transformation for yourself to end up following the black woman? God. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I mean, as a black woman, I think, you know, the, the process probably looks different than it might for people who don't identify as female or as Black. But for me, I mean, the sacred Black feminine, she dwells in intuition and mysticism and magic and possibility and poetry. And, you know, I was, I was just formed in this incredibly, like, hierarchical, linear, over-formally educated brain, where there was a time on my journey towards her that I had to say, it, like, it, I literally do not have to understand this in the way that white patriarchy has taught me as a legitimate knowledge. And I need to let go of the of needing to have an answer for people who are skeptic. And I need to just drop into her magic. And that for me meant a lot of trauma therapy so I could connect with my body again, because as a black woman, my way of surviving was just don't feel anything. And for me, that involved a lot of contemplative walking as a practice and getting into some of the contemplative walking movements that abound in the U.S. and learning how to just be in my body as I'm interacting with the world. Um, a lot of self-compassion, mindfulness medica- meditation, those sorts of things. And so I think it, it's so much more than just let's just change structures and let's start new programs. And it's really like, how can I start to trust that I'm sacred too, and that the knowledge and wisdom that comes from my body is divine and it's something that I can trust, which is so different than what I was taught both in academia and also in my spiritual community of origins. And from there, how can I allow my body to guide me as I join movements that do center Black trans women and stuff like that? And even, you know, just making decisions. I remember on my, I, I lead a small team um, of creators and we were trying to make some decisions about like, do we want to participate in the Black Friday toxic fray or not, you know, in terms of some of our offerings. And I just, rem- it was sort of a last minute decision. I just remember saying, actually, I whatever it is that we might consider, I need it to, to live within my sacred Black feminine body for a few months so I can try it out. And that's just a completely different way than like looking at QuickBooks and being like, we need to make this amount of money in order to make ends meet or what's somebody else doing? 
You know, even looking at people who are similar, like what's this organization doing? Or, well, everyone's kind of doing it anyway, you know, so we're going to miss out. Like there's so many other ways that I've been taught to engage with the world. And um, a big part of following the sake of Black Feminine is actually trusting my body and allowing ideas to live in my body before I act on them. It's, it's a slower life. <laughs> I would imagine so. Yeah. I would imagine. Yeah, and it's also like it's, it's so liberating too. Like, I mean, even yeah, can I just share like what it's been like to bring this book into the world in in a sacred black feminine way? Yeah, I mean, so you get all these messages from your publishing company that needs to make money off your book, from you know your agent. It might all be well meaning, but you need to be doing this. You need to be speaking there. You need to do this. You need to do that. These are the you get on that, that a people's theology podcast. <laughs> totally right. Like, there's just so many. And it's all, it's, these are all white patriarchal ways of measuring success and value completely. Like how many books do you sell? What list do you get on? What, what audiences do you have connection to? Who are the famous people that like your book? You know, and it's all like, it, and so it's been so powerful for me to even in the lead up to this book launch to say, okay, but if I really believe that God is a black woman, how does that impact? my emotions and my thoughts and my behaviors, even as I bring this book into the world, what sort of role does fear play? And how can I surrender that fear? What sort of role does partnering with this organization or choosing this metric, what does that say about the value of this offering versus where, where's the deeper truth, you know? And it's just so easy to get swept away. And so I think reminding myself gosh you know the black madonna is subversive and so powerful but not in this like omni way not in this i'm gonna blow you away way and so she might show up in some ways i mean there's so many miracles associated with the black madonna so she might show up in some ways that are like wow worthy but the fact of the matter is, is that's not the only way she works and and so it's just been this interesting subversion of just the very world that we live in, even in something as simple as bringing a book into the world. That's so great. You mentioned this before about how embodying God as a black woman opens you up to solidarity with other people who are oppressed that might not necessarily be black women. And so what I love about a statement like God is a black woman is that it's a statement that is very particular. God is a black woman, very particular, but it allows us and opens us up to something more universal. And so when you say something like God is a black woman, how does it open you up to solidarity with people who are oppressed, but might not necessarily be black women? Yeah. I mean, I think my own journey towards God as a black woman has given me a really soft heart towards other ways in which God needs to be understood and conceived and embodied in our world and to seeing how much it has healed me to find, finally encounter myself in the divine. I'm like, I want everyone to encounter themselves in the divine, every single person, because it's changed everything about my life. And it's given me so much power and so much hope and so much freedom from the white patriarchal imagination and so part of this work has been, okay, now what does it look like for us to, to have a different conception of this like ableist white male God or this like this white male God, you know, because white male God is really just 
the tip of the iceberg in terms of all of the different intersectional ways in which we are being oppressed by this exclusive notion. And so I think like what I would love is for my book to, to be part of this larger conversation of all of these other books. And, you know, it's fascinating is the, the book that I was probably reading the most closely while I was writing God as a Black Woman is actually the Black Trans Prayer Book. And so it's kind of like, well, yeah, I can't even I can't even begin to imagine God as a Black woman without the input of Black trans folks who are also claiming themselves in the divine in ways that are actually even more complex and with more impediments than me. And so it's like, I think what it, what this has done is it, it's encouraged me to listen more to other folks and how they're conceiving of the divine. And also it's encouraged me to be a lot more active in movements that are creating spaces for everyone to find themselves in the divine. And it just makes sense. I mean, if you just think about these black Madonnas, like one of the ones that I love is she who cherishes our hot mess. It's not her real name, but I made it nicknames for all of them. And I mean, they're, they're known, all of them are known for like welcoming the most marginalized, the most ostracized people of their time. And so just recognizing, gosh, she cherishes our hot mess, like literally the hotter the mess, the louder the mess, the more she cherishes us, that's our offering to her, invites a really different um, type of person to come and claim their spot in her than White Male God did, for me at least. This might be very obvious. So the tagline of my podcast is exploring, inspiring, and liberating theologies. And so it might be obvious based on the conversation so far, but how do you hope that God as a Black woman inspires and liberates its readers? Yeah. Well, I mean, I wrote it for Black women, and I was very intentional in centering Black women in the book. So my first hope is that Black women and other Black people see themselves as sacred and holy and find themselves in my story. But I think beyond that, I, I want to, for those who need some support in claiming their own divine, I hope my story and my very like hard fought journey <laughs> helps them see that they can too. And then I also think for, uh, for people who are in positions of power, for them to see the damage that white male God has done in both subtle and like very blatant ways. And in my story, in one particular story, and for them to feel motivated to make some changes in their own lives and potentially in, you know, in the communities that they have some influence over. Yeah, absolutely. Last question. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? Yay, everywhere. Um, I'm online, you know, so all the socials, um, but christinacleveland.com is my website. And there's, there's just so much going on there. Um, and you can get, you can get in get into my newsletter. We're actually launching a new newsletter next week. That's the God is a Black Woman Freedom Journal. And so anyone who's interested in growing in creating a world that's in which all Black people and all women are sacred and free, like these are just resources that'll be supporting them in that. Um, so it's a great way to just stay in touch. Yeah. And where can people get the book? Anywhere, literally anywhere. But I mean, my best, you know, find a local bookstore. Most many local bookstores are carrying it in your library as well. Yeah. I'm uh, I'm blanking on the name of it right now, but there is actually a bookstore here in the Twin Cities, and it's owned by a young black woman. And it actually, like, it got created out of like the George Floyd protests. I don't know if they ship, but if if they do, they're definitely a place that you know. If you're listening right now, yes, they have a bookshop web um um 
So if you just search for them on Bookshop, then you can, you can actually search on Bookshop for Black-owned businesses in your area. Right, so, right. Perfect. Yeah. Well, definitely, especially any Black-owned bookstore, get God is a Black woman and, uh, and, and support not only you, but also support some of the Black-owned bookstores yep. out there. That's the goal. Perfect. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for chatting a little bit more about the book. This is a book where when I think of the books that are like, they need to be in the world right now. This is one of those books. And I feel just so grateful for you uh, for you to write it. And also I feel grateful that like it exists in my lifetime. And I, I'm just so glad that it's out in the world now. And uh, thank you so much again for chatting a little bit more about it. Uh, it's definitely one of those books that will remain with me for a very, very long time. Oh, thank you. I'm honored. <laughs> If you'd like to connect with Christina and Hannah Kaminer and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Oh, my God.